Psalm 85 says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Sunday gathering, gathering for worship, for song. Lord, you put a song in our lives. You give us uh, something to sing about and sing for. Thank you for the the supper, God, the, the meal we gather around, the bread and the cup, which is assurance and hope and vitality and everything that the world longs for embodied uh, in this meal. We thank you, God. We thank you for the scriptures which continue to speak uh, to your people and to the wider world about your will, that they continue to have relevance and meaning for our lives insofar as they guide us to you. We pray, Father, um, like the psalm says, that we might hear as you speak, as you uh, hear what you've spoken. Father, we thank you for the church. We pray, Father, that wherever you are named among your people, you are honored and glorified. That your work in the world uh, would be done through willing participants in your church and that you would help us, God, to know what to do. Grant us wisdom that we may know how to live in these times and in this place. We thank you for your Son, for the cross, for the hope we have because of, because of you, Jesus. All you've done for us is beyond repayment. But let us live in joyful response to what you've accomplished at the cross and the resurrection. And we pray in the name of Christ the Lord. Amen. Well, uh, two weeks away from the happiest time of year. It's really uh, an adjustment for me, uh, like making a, like palm trees and sand a part of the Christmas experience. I, I'm, I'm used to uh, really frigid temperatures and snow. And um, so a lot of like the... Uh, like Bing Crosby, Melikaliki Maka type. Is that Melikaliki Maka? You know this, right? Uh, I need something like that, yeah, to, to help me connect. Um, but either way, whether it's warm or freezing cold and dark, <laughs> uh, this time of year is my favorite by far. December is my favorite month. Um, I, and maybe it's because despite uh, growing up, and becoming more scientific and rational in the way that I look at the world and my life, Christmas time, the month of December, for me, still holds out uh, a sense of wonder. Uh, and maybe that's the case for most of us. Maybe that's why, if you like this time of year, that's why, because there's something uh, very childlike uh, for me about this season. Um, but we're not we're not quite in terms of the way... The church has understood this time of year. We're not quite to Christmas, 
Christmas begins on Christmas Day, <laughs> December 25th. Uh, we're in a season um, uh, that the church has called Advent or coming or arrival. Uh, maybe all of the coming and arrival, both of those. Um, uh, but Christmas then goes for about 12 days, so you don't have to take your tree down on January 1st. You can keep it up for a while. I don't know. Are any of you the type of people that keep it up all year? None of you? No, no judgment. I, I could live with a Christmas tree all year. Man, all right, good for you. One, one courageous soul. Uh, it's worth celebrating. But you know, like the 12 days of uh, a partridge and a pear tree. Uh, me and Hannah sing that one on a regular basis. She's got it down. Um, but Advent uh, first, uh, but not really first, because Advent requires uh, that we include in our observing this time of year the birth of Christ. Advent, uh, Advent is uh, arrival, is what the word means in, in English. Um, but it, it thinks about the arrival of God in the world as one of us, in what has been called the incarnation, the birth of the Messiah in a, in a body, in flesh. I've mentioned this before, but not God dis, disguised as a human or God disguised as Jesus, but God as a human being, fully human, uh, susceptible to death even. Um, but it also pays attention to having come. This is a big, big part of our hope that God has come as one of us. We believe, I don't know if you knew this, we're supposed to believe this. It'd be good to believe this, uh, that he shall come again. And so we, we hope for a moment or at least turn our attention toward that great hope of the once and future arrival of God. And that sounds really basic, but I think this is a very, uh, this could have a, quite an impact on us, I think, if we, if we spent some time with it. Advent kind of takes our understanding of time as like a linear thing, right? You have like Monday, and then after that Tuesday, and you have whatever, September, and then you have October, you have 2023, and then you have 2024, Advent takes time and kind of like this straight line and kind of bends it in on itself so that we find ourselves looking at the past and in looking at the past also getting a set of glasses to view the present and to view the future. We, we are... We are Reckoning with something that has happened, and it's as if we're there, in a sense, at the at the stable, as we see. Although I don't know that stable is the right word. We can talk about that on Christmas or after, hopefully. Um, but we also are, are people who are somehow standing at the arrival of God in the future. And so it's as if for a moment, and I know this is a brain scramble and sounds like uh, uh, the Empire Strikes Back or something, but it's as if all time is located in one moment. All time gathered up. It's the fullness of time. And Advent reminds us, because it thinks about 
the once and future arrival of God, it reminds us that we are waiters. I don't mean, maybe in a sense, waiters, not like waiters at the, uh, at the restaurant. Maybe. Maybe that's a good analogy, actually. But I mean, like, we're people who wait. We don't love that. Uh, who of you likes to wait? Even waiting for something amazing like Christmas morning, uh, I hate it. Even though I know it's going to be amazing and it's not that far off, I want it now. We don't like to wait. And some of our uh, allergy to waiting is seen in our inability to be still. And in many ways, because waiting is such a challenge, even for the church, we can make God redundant. As if we don't need him, we'll get on with the business of the church. If God comes back, cool, but that's not our focus. We'll get done what needs to get done. Sounds good. Sounds very American, but it might pose a challenge for us in believing the words of Scripture. But what does daily life of someone who waits look like? This kind of waiting that, that we, we have in mind or we should have in mind is not even just waiting for a kind of deathless existence. We are hopefully waiting for something like that, a resurrection, a world free from dying and sorrow. But we're waiting for a... That's almost too small. Because we're not just waiting for the absence of death and dying. We are longing for a restoration. The end of sin and its reign. Violence and war. Racism and hatred. Sexual abuse and human trafficking, even our hostility towards our own family members and neighbors. We are waiting for that experience. And as it turns out, we have something to do. I think we'll see this, but waiting means walking. Waiting means movement, not just sitting still. But we... we, we'll have to deal with the fact that that kind of world, a kind of world where every human heart is turned towards God and instinctively obeys His will, is something that only God can bring about. And He is bringing that about. You may be evidence of that coming in your own life. Okay, how you doing? You all right? We're talking about the bending of time and everything. Just want to make sure. Um, but Advent, in that we're waiting, we're also saying something. We're saying that the situation that we live in, things are not okay. Things are not as they should be. Now, we, are, in our society and culture, can find plenty of ways to keep our minds occupied so that we don't have to notice the fact that things are not well yet. They shall be well, we believe, as the people of God. We're not pessimists. We're not, like, drained of energy because we despair. But we also know that things are not yet 
as they shall be one day. And so if we are to wait, we must deal with the darkness at hand and not turn away from it with a happy Christian song on Sunday to forget it, to forget that that's the case. We don't gather to forget the world that's outside there. That is not our goal. This isn't a kind of check your worries and fears at the door and come in and get high on Jesus. We assemble as people who hope in a broken world. But rushing past this moment, and I love that Advent for a long time in the church marks the beginning of the year, not the end. Even though we're at the end of the year, for the church it's the beginning of a new year. And we start at the beginning by acknowledging the darkness and turning toward the future. It sounds uh, horrible, (laughs) but it's important. Just like we cannot rush past the cross to the empty tomb, so we can't rush past the need in our world not paying attention to it. I love the way Tish Harrison uh, said this. Advent is a way to practice faith and hope-formed waiting. It's a way to begin the year explicitly foregrounding not our own plans, goals, success, or achievements, but the destiny God has written for His creation and for all humanity. I love that. It's a moment to make sure we don't have foregrounded or at the center of our lives too small a hope. One that focuses just on me and how I'm doing. And if you're a religious person, it can feel good to focus on not sinning. Like that's all God wants. Just don't fall into sin. Even that is too small a hope. Though I'm not suggesting you should go out and (laughs) make it your goal to sin all year or something like that. But this is a way of putting a creation-wide sigh of relief as the target, so to speak. Well, what does that look like? That's demanding. Um, I'm not sure I can answer that uh, completely. I have some ideas. But creation is groaning, and we as the church will acknowledge it and let the light of Christ shine upon it. Now, there is um, uh, a a number of helpful uh, uh, passages in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, which is where I want to spend our time this uh, this afternoon that help us get at some of this. And I I may have, in the year I've been here, given a hint about what is my favorite idea in the Christian Bible. And I've like sprinkled it in here and there. Uh, but today I want to look pay, pay a little closer att- attention to what has been for me perhaps the most... Uh, moving part of the Bible. Um, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, let's, let's read it, actually. This will have everything to do with what I've been talking about with Advent and waiting and hoping. Shout for joy, O barren one who has borne no children. Burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be more than the children of the one who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the sight of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. 
Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and straighten your strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will settle desolate towns. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be discouraged, for you will not suffer disgrace. And you will forget the shame of your youth and the disgrace of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Pretty encouraging, right? How many of you here, he said it four stinking times, no more shame for you. O barren one, over and over, don't feel, don't feel bad about you, your people, your situation. I am removing your shame. Now, it's worth mentioning, again, anytime we look at this part of Isaiah, that this is initially words concerning those who are living in a less than ideal situation, living in exile. Exile, of, of course, means for most experiencing exile, being dislocated, leaving your home and living in a, in a different other place. It's being dislocated. But it also makes one wonder, apparently, having been exiled, whether or not God cares And if he cares, is he strong enough to do anything about it? And if you're in exile, apparently, you have to make do with where you're at, which could include picking up new practices and abandoning the way you used to hope. But Isaiah, uh, or this poet in Isaiah here, is calling to mind Something familiar, uh, something odd, uh, and something impossible, (laughs) really. But it's not impossible, but it really is impossible. And this poet does this in this part of the Bible a lot. When he's speaking to people who are right on the brink of either despair or numbness or forgetfulness or remembering the past too much, he speaks to those people about things that God has done. He'll bring up, for example, for their own good, he'll bring up that God created everything. He'll bring up that he summoned their ancestors, the patriarchs and matriarchs of Israel. He'll bring up the exodus and the wilderness wanderings and Mount Sinai and the conquest of the land. Uh, He will bring up all of these previous stories Not so that they would just remember and say, ah, those were the good old days. Let's get a task force together and a book to read and let's get back where we used to be. It's not that kind of remembering. But he wants them to remember, because as I said before with Advent, by remembering what God has done, you can have an indication of what God is capable of and shall do. These are not one-time events. Time doesn't work that way. But so he speaks to them about barrenness. Rejoice, barren one. Now talk about something that makes no sense. (laughs) You're infertile? I'll be happy about it. (laughs) 
It doesn't make any sense. In, in fact, I think, and this is why these passages are so um, meaningful to me. Uh, most of you know we, we uh, are a, our family has been put together in a very creative way. It's not the traditional nuclear family. We, me and my wife met each other in the church, and we were unable to have children. And by the mercy of God and his great unpayable grace <laughs> uh, has, has given us a daughter. Uh, but we, we couldn't have children ourselves. So I know something of how weird it is to say, rejoice, O barren one. I, I'm, I'm not a female. That, that's obvious. Uh, so I'm not going to have a child anyways. But as uh, we don't know, even in the Bible, if it's just the women who couldn't have kids, they didn't have infer- infertility clinics to test the men. So it might have been them as well. But I, I remember grappling with not being able to have a child. And people would say things like this to us. Good meaning people. Like God has a plan. God's going to do something great for you. Uh, to which my, my inner first response is not, thank you, brother or sister, for that encouragement. It was pain and anger. Because you're, you're asking for joy to come from a place where joy has been taken away, being able to have a, a child. But shout, O barren one, for joy makes a little bit more sense to me now. Uh, we were able to adopt Hannah back in 2017. There she is. Uh, and that's Justine holding her. And man, I can't quantify the joy we felt when that little creature came into our home back in 2017. This was shortly after. Uh, I was looking through pictures last night with Hannah about this, uh, this time. And it was so much joy for us that our barrenness had not ended, but had ended. Do you know what I mean? Like we weren't going to, a child wasn't coming from our bodies. It could still happen, I guess. Uh, it, it happens in the Bible to very elderly people, so maybe we still got a shot. But uh, probably not. Uh, but I don't think about that that much anymore. I suppose if I thought about it, it could still make me a little sad. But it's been eclipsed by, by her. She's come into our lives. And it's changed our perception of life. I know what you mean. Rejoice, barren mother. I'm kind of glad we couldn't have kids because I couldn't imagine it being any better. As we're looking through the pictures last night, man, all of the people, we lived in Missouri at the time, but all of the family that came in, the friends that made the long trip to come and meet Hannah and celebrate with us. It was amazing season. So good for me to return to that and just think about the gifts that God has given us. So just the thought of a barren mother, a barren mother, I mean, it's an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense. You can't be a mother and be barren. Pick a lane. (laughs) But as it turns out, you can. But just the thought is, is a summons to a dream. It's a summons to believe in something that's not possible 
or at least very challenging, unlikely. But when the poet puts before them this announcement, rejoice, barren one, he doesn't just mean believe in something that's tough to believe in. He's conjuring up a whole story, their story. He doesn't just talk about the barren woman here. I'll read for you a couple other passages around the same part of Isaiah. How are you guys? You okay? All right, it's winter, it's getting dark out, and it's in the afternoon, and I don't want you to fall asleep on me. Uh, the, the children born in a time of your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, this place is too crowded for me. Make room for me to settle. Then you will say in your heart, who's born, these, uh, born me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. So who has reared these? I was left all alone. Where then have these come from? So he's putting this woman before the people again who couldn't have kids, but now it's on the other side of, now she has kids. And she's, I can't believe all of the kids I have. I have so many kids that they're saying we need a bigger house. We need a bigger yard. We need a bigger city. We need more room. The barren woman can't believe. The, po- the poet's putting this on the radar. Right now, you feel barren. You'll say soon, we need a bigger house. <laughs> Israel has a lot of experience with infertile families. Barren with them. Barren women. The mothers of Israel are barren. When in the garden, the human beings transgress God's good will and they take from the tree that they ought not take from, uh, we find a curse in the world. And the woman is told that she will have a challenge in pregnancy. Now, this is changing as translations of the Bible are being updated, but you're almost left with the impression in the English Bible that what the curse meant for the woman is that when she's in the stirrups at the hospital about to give birth, that that moment of delivering the child is going to hurt now because of your sin. That's not exactly what's meant. In fact, I don't really think childbirth ever didn't hurt, according to the Bible. I can't have a child that way, but I, can imagine, I can't imagine it ever feeling great. Um, and there's something to that, that life emerges from pain, right? But that's not what's meant there. It's not just that it will hurt to physically give birth. The language suggests that it's actually getting pregnant, conceiving of a child and then carrying that child full term and then delivering that child and then raising that child. The whole business of creating a family is fraught with challenges due to sin. The whole enterprise. And we find that theme being played out in the rest of Genesis. In fact, after a a, a panoramic view of the world 
the good world that God has made, we see it kind of spiral nosedive down through the flood, through the Tower of Babel. We're introduced to Sarai and Abram. And we're told immediately that Sarai is barren. Now, when you hear that she is barren, what do you expect? Nothing. (laughs) You expect no future. There can't be a future. Barrenness means a number of things, all of which are pretty bad. More in that world than in ours, but even still today for the infertile family, it's a challenge. We still feel that pain today, but in that world, even more so. There wasn't for these ancient pre-Israelites this fully developed uh, view of what happens when you die. Like we have, we have a partially developed view, like a resurrection, whatever that looks like. They didn't have that kind of thinking. The way you live on after death is to have a child. If you're barren, then you die, and that's all she wrote. There's no continuation of that family, of your family. Barrenness made, put the women, and again, in this world, the focus seems to be on the woman, but in a place of shame and of scorn. Not many men are going to want to marry an infertile woman a woman known to not have children. And it becomes associated, this image of barrenness that we meet in the very first mother of Israel, it becomes an image of something that is impossible, something that is connected to deep shame and uselessness. I've made a list here, but it's only partial, of loss, of despair, There are these lists in the book of Genesis that go something like so-and-so begat or uh, had so-and-so and then they died. And then so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so and then they died. And that's discouraging because the list is always punctuated by dying. But at least they lived. (laughs) If you're barren, there is no future possible. No life to be lived and then die is even possible. Because before life can begin, it's cut off in barrenness. So barrenness, we're dealing here with something bigger than just a woman who can't have a child. We're dealing with a way of perceiving challenges in God's good but broken world. Barrenness means something impossible. And it's not just something that happens to occur, barrenness, here it is. This to me is everything. It is God's choice. God started this people that goes on to be called Israel by choosing an elderly, barren family. It's not just a problem that's in the way accidentally. God reached for it when he began. Well, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he reach for a young, vital couple? Why wouldn't he reach, if he's going to go to Mesopotamia, why not call a young couple that is virile and 
ready to have children and ready to take on the world and change the world and do the Hope Volunteer Corps and everything else, full of energy. Why not start there? Why start with an elderly, barren family where before the thing even gets going, no life is possible? Why would God start there? Why does he continue to go there? Why do that? Did you know he still does this? Do you know in many respects we are in our society dealing with barrenness? And we look at it and say we've got to get cracking, though we know we can't overcome it. We try through our stupid politics. We try, but we know we're dealing with something bigger, something that demands intervention from the outside, something that demands what only God can do. Why would God start with barrenness? Because if he didn't, we'd brag. Because if he didn't, we'd show everyone how awesome we are and we would make God redundant. He's put at the very beginning something that can't be overcome except by him. The story of Israel starts there. How are you doing? Look what, he, look what he says again later, the poet. He wants to remind them of this very story. Again, to the exiles, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. That's us, I think. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Uh, I recently, well, about a couple of years ago, read a paper by Gerald Jansen that makes a convincing argument that the word here isn't quarry, but tunnel through which water goes through. And that will become important in a moment. The, the quarry from which you were dug, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, but I blessed him and made him many. For the Lord will comfort Zion, and he will comfort all her waste places, and will make her wilderness like Eden, that's a water-filled, lush place. You know the story of Eden, right? Her desert, like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Who is the barren woman for Isaiah? It's the city. It's the capital city. And they're called to remember the impossibility of even being a people. Look back to Sarah, that dusty, old, dried-up pit from which I began, y'all. In fact, when Sarah first is told in her old age that she will have children, her response is, I'm dried up. I can't. Will there be pleasure? And the word is Eden. Will there be an Eden for me? No, that's not possible. Everyone knows barren women don't have children. You hear the poets saying to the exiles, your city is a barren mother. You made her barren. <laughs> She's bereaved. She's barren. But I shall repopulate her. And it's as impossible to you now as it might have seemed to Sarah when she was told in her old postmenopausal life that she would not have kids. But it's not just Sarah. Sarah and Abram, the, the Bible is full of barren women 
and what I've come to call barren-ish women, women who have children through incredible challenges and difficulty. But there's about seven women, if you add the city eight, that are actually called barren. This is what's really amazing. If Sarah was the beginning of the story, that would be enough to blow our minds. Like God would start there. But she has this miracle child, just like we did, actually in a much more miraculous way than we did. And then he gets married to a woman, and guess what? She's barren. We're doing the story all over again. Well, they have miracle children. God opens her womb, and she has two miracle children, Jacob and Esau. Jacob marries Rachel, and guess what? Rachel is barren. <laughs> Here we go again. Three times in a row. In fact, look at, look at what she says when she can't have kids. She said, uh, uh, Rachel saw that she had borne no children to Jacob, and Rachel was jealous of her, of her, her sister. She said to Jacob, give me sons. If you don't, I'm a dead woman. That's the experience for not being able to have kids. Look what she says when, when God opens her womb. God remembered Rachel, God heard her, God opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son, and she said, here it is, God has taken away my shame. She has called his name Joseph, which is to say, may the Lord add to me another son. She goes from, I can't have kids, to, look at what God has done. He overcame the the impossible barren womb, the dead womb, as Paul calls it. She said, I'm going to have another one. I'm going to name him Joseph, which means something like another one. But this is what God did in their origin story. And the exiles are being reminded of that. They're not being told, here's what I need you to do if you want to get out of exile. They're being told about what has once happened, and he's taking the calendar and bending it back together so that what once happened and what shall happen, they find both happening at the same time. What happened shall happen. Don't you know? Look back at who you are. Where did this whole thing come from? You're in exile now. But do you imagine this is how the story ends? Look back. Three in a row, guys. Oh, and it didn't stop there. Remember in the period of the judges? A barren woman gave birth to a child named Samson. Remember right before you were a great strong monarchy with Solomon and David? Remember Hannah? She showed up there barren. And God opened her womb and her son went and appointed as a child. It doesn't stop there for us as Christians. When we open the New Testament, who do we meet in the Gospel of Luke? an elderly couple who are said to be barren. No child possible. Right at the beginning of this new covenant, we start, here we are again, right back in barrenness. And who does Elizabeth have, to her surprise? A Sam, Samuel-like figure named John who will roll out the red carpet for one whose birth is the most miraculous. We see something happening God does 
the impossible. By the time we get to the New Testament, we're seeing that this barrenness gives us every indication that nothing can get in the way of God's will. And he chooses barrenness so that everyone knows that. (laughs) Jesus Christ, born to Mary, it's like barrenness only kicked up a notch. All pointing, the stories of Abraham and Sarah and these miraculous births were pointing in the direction that God would do something totally unthinkable, that he would come through a womb. Miraculously, right? The Virgin Mary gives birth to God. She carries God in her womb. And we say, how is that possible? Look look at your whole story. The whole thing is impossible. None of it is rational. None of it is like not doesn't demand wonder and awe and belief and hope and turning ourselves. None of it. None of it is a plan someone came up with. All of it, the whole story, tells of a God who does the impossible. Why would we look elsewhere? When we get to the Messiah, it's the same story being told over again. Look at this. Mary, and Mary said, just as after she learns, she's going to give uh, birth to God himself. Uh, Mary said to the angel, How shall this be since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the, God, the child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth, that's John's mom, in her old age is also conceived. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. It's exactly what he told Sarah. It's exactly what he told her. Nothing is too wonderful for God. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Okay, so what's some of the takeaway? Well, I don't want to, I don't want to tell you here so you apply all this to your life. First, I want you to marvel at this and wake up. You okay? You guys awake? I see, I see from here, just so you know, if you sleep, I know you see me if I sleep. I see you all. First is a summons to wonder. To grapple with the God who does the impossible and to try as hard as we can to live like we believe that. That, I think, is the first thing here. But... It's, it's a summons to the exiles to look at God. To live with the hopes not fulfilled, but because of what's happened, we can live as if they've been fulfilled because God has taken time and he's done this. No more this stupid living. No more this living like it depends on us. No more of this frantic scurrying, but a hope God shall do what only God shall do. Let us then get busy living in faith. What barrenness do we face today? 
our society, what barrenness do we face? On the other side of the very planet we're living on, people are living in constant anxiety because of war, right? Right now, while we're sitting here. In our own neighborhoods, families live in anxiety and angst and frustration. We ourselves in our own hearts live in anxiety and fear and frustration. Am I good enough? Have I done enough? (laughs) Does God love me? I blew it again. We live with that. What kind of barrenness do we face? How about the church as we sense the church becoming less relevant, not more? And we do our tricks to, like, look cool. You remember the phase a few years ago when worship leaders wore skinny jeans? Do you remember that? Thank God if you don't. That means you were spared. I was one of those that bought into that. I was like, I ain't a pair of skinny jeans. Look, I'm six foot five. Like, I, I'm massive. I had skinny jeans. I'm leading the church. Like, this is what everyone wants. They want to see that the church is cool. When they go to church, they don't just get weird Christians. They get cool people. Like, look. Look at our awesome songs from the radio. We're cool. Like No one cares about that. It doesn't work. But that's what we can tend to do to try to present ourselves. I don't know where I was going with that. I just wanted to ranch about that. But, but we, we can do that, that it depends on us to fix this problem. But what's most challenging for us is to prayerfully, I don't mean prayerfully like just say prayerfully and then you're done. I mean actually pray and wait and live faithful, live creatively, live lives which anticipate, which indicate that we believe it's a done deal. We believe it's already happened. We no longer, like the first slide I showed you, foreground our schedules and our plans Because we believe those things are small. And God wants to heal a broken world. We know he shall. And so we go out announcing that healing. Not just by like, come to my church, but by demonstrating it through a new life lived under God's righteousness. Lived in humility. We are people who believe. And so we turn to God to do what only he can In the meantime, we walk in light. Not in our own light, but in God's. What ways are... Oh, I know what I was saying before about making fun of worship leaders. Is that we can tend to feel like the church isn't doing well too. We can tend to feel like uh, the church is becoming less relevant, smaller, less and less people want it. So instead of coming in prayer, facing that fear... We try to dance our way out of it and make pretend like it's not. But maybe, maybe what God's doing is saying, wait. Would you wait? These exiles, by the way, and I'll end with this. These exiles lived their whole lives in exile. When they wanted to go home, God said, no, your kids will go home. You're going to live here. You're going to wait, and then you're going to die. And then your children will wait a little, but they'll get to go home. Would you wait in the church if it didn't grow until your kid's age? If someone told you church is going to struggle until you're dead, it's just going to be hard. I'm not saying that's what God's saying, but you you have to just be faithful and it's not going to look pretty. 
your whole life. And then when your kids come along, I'll bless the church and make her big and exciting. Would you hang around? Or would you say, no, I'm going to the one that looks like it's more exciting? I'm not denigrating a church that looks like they're doing great. I'm just saying the summons to face what's impossible and to hope is the greatest challenge the people of God have always faced. So there we have it in Advent. We look at the, the, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. We look at what he's doing. And in the meantime, we are not frightened by the obstacles in our way. The cross, of course, is one more place that is barren. And the bread and the cup bring us back again to God's choice. Why didn't God choose a warrior to clobber Rome? Why did he choose Baron Sarah? Why did he choose the cross? He brings life where no life is possible. There is nothing rational about this. Everyone knows that doesn't work. Shame doesn't disappear because somebody dies, right? But wait, that's exactly what we believe. We believe that God does what we need from a place where nothing can happen. Let's pray and take the Lord's Supper together. Lord in heaven, we thank you for the barrenness of the cross. It's as if the cross, a place where lives were destroyed, a place where breath was taken, Fear reigns. You brought life. It's as if you planted the cross on the ground like a tree and it it bore much fruit. That you've turned dead wood into a life-giving place. We come, Father, to you uh, facing all kinds of obstacles, facing some together, some maybe individually on our own. And it's so tempting to either lose hope or panic and react. But we pray, Father, to take a long look at the Scriptures and how you are and to not lose heart. We pray, Father, the impossible because that's precisely what we're called to believe is the impossible. We pray, Father, that you would fix this world beyond our own ideologies. That, God, you would change the communities we live in, Father, that hearts would be mended, that the hungry would would be well-fed, that the broken and unloved would find themselves a sibling, a daughter, or a son, that, Father, uh, the world would be put back together by your power, We pray and long for something uh, for which we have an indication in the cross. We thank you, God, that this meal tells us that all is well and all shall be well because of you. It's in Christ the Lord we pray. Amen.